Amen. First Kings chapter 11 this evening, we begin at verse 9, Solomon's End. There's so many titles you could give this, you know, uh, he did it to himself, no one else to blame, things like that. Very educational, I think, uh, to consider the life of Solomon, though it's, it's not a pleasant study, at least not for me. I am looking forward to uh, the prophets coming on the scene and dealing with the uh, wicked kings that we're, we're going to encounter. It um, is true, I think, that wisdom leaves its signature on anything well made. You look at that and say, man, somebody was really on the ball when they put that together. Solomon, this man of wisdom, did not leave a well-made signature on the kingdom that he was handed by his father. And he was so prepared for it by David. You know, we talked about that last speech that David gave to his son, uh, how powerful it was. Be the man, Solomon. Stick with the Lord. Get the job done. And it leaves us scratching our heads. Now, we have to always remember in coming across such sinners as Solomon that other people's sins look easier to avoid than my own. You know, if somebody, you know, is sinning because they like bananas too much, you can say, boy, that's an easy one. I can't understand why they're so susceptible to that. And then, of course, uh, there are the struggles that we as individuals have that we expect to be understood. And so we have to always be careful, of course, when we're condemning someone's actions. Solomon makes it easy. He gives it to us. And uh, we have to talk about that. Where is Solomon right now? We'll get to that in a little bit. We'll get to that, but not right now. Anyway, I think it was his sense of exception that ended in disaster. And it's not hard to, to see that in a celebrity. He was a celebrity. I, I mean, people came to hear him speak, which was the custom of the day. The, the wise would go hear the wise speak. We, we get some of it in the book of Acts, even you know, centuries later. There in Athens, Paul is dealing, dealing with people who Luke said these guys had nothing else better to do than, than pick on each other. Well, Solomon... As again, as celebrities tend to have this sense of this sixth sense, sick, not sixth sense of entitlement. They tend to not expect to be held accountable for the things that they do. They tend to want to be excused from the standards that apply to everybody else. We see this all the time. And he is no different, but he just carried it into his religion. With God, he felt that he was the exception, that he could do better, that he would get an excuse. Those gateway sins of, of you know, crashing in on De- Deuteronomy 17 were just that, gateway sins that led him finally to idolatry, the worst of them all. And I think Solomon, most of the kings that we come across, they had this problem. They felt that they had royal privilege. Now, there is a such thing as executive privilege, and it has its place. I mean, people in certain positions need to have uh, the right to do certain things that others may not have, uh, not in an abusive way. But he, of course, this is not executive privilege. This is disobedience. And, uh, of course, when you look at the life of King Saul, 
His motivation was self-love. Saul just felt he was better than everybody. It was all about him. And he was bloodthirsty. He murdered people. He did not only kill them, he murdered them. To murder them, you have to kill them. But a murder is not justifiable. What killing might be. So here is Solomon. What else could it be? How else can we account for this behavior that we, we get from a man who authored no less than three books of our Bible? You just can't dismiss that. We'll, we'll come, come to some of this in a little bit. We look now at verse 9. So Yahweh became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned from Yahweh, God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Well, God is constantly provoked. It is, it is ongoing. Human beings, sinners, are always provoking God. Uh, but to see Solomon do it, of course, is uh, disturbing, as I've already mentioned. Hebrews 10, 31 it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And here is Solomon falling into the hands of the living God in, in one sense, not the final sense. It says, because his heart turned from Yahweh, God of Israel. Now, I know we covered some of this already, uh, much of this, but it, it merits reviewing one more time. There's, uh, the mental reflex is to question his salvation after reading this. His heart turned from Yahweh, God of Israel. We read that about anybody else in the Bible. We said, well, that guy's lost. But we come to Solomon, we say, but wait a minute, there are some other sections of Scripture that enter the picture that force us to review or re-examine this and not say, you know, this is really easy. Was he saved? Yes, his wives turned his heart after other gods, but it was his fault. But God anticipated this man's sin before he was born. God addressed the sins that Solomon would do and what God's response would be to the sins that Solomon would do. And you can't cherry pick and say, yeah, but that's only the sin of not making up his bed in the morning. No, the sin was comprehensive. Second Samuel 17, but my mercy shall not depart from him. He's talking about Solomon, the child that David and Bathsheba are going, uh, have conceived case for Solomon. I'd rather err on the side of grace than, than, than legalism because I'm a sinner and I need grace and I love grace. That doesn't mean that this, it's abusive. First Chronicles chapter 22. This is what it says of, of God says of, of Solomon. He shall build a house for my name and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, of course, that's far-reaching to the millennial kingdom of David, but it singles out Solomon as a unique character in human history. I mean, David, of course, is, is in this category, too. So I go back to, had he not penned, been used by God to author, or God the author of it, and he, Solomon the scribe, three books of the Bible and Psalms. He wrote Psalms, some Psalms, that is. It would be easy to dismiss him. But when Peter writes, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and righteousness. 
God took the, the, this man who became jaded because of his wealth and the women and all the stuff that, not that the women were wrong, not that they were right. It's just not, the part is that together they, they crossed lines, they sinned. And yet, when he is old and jaded and he writes about it, God says, I could use that because, or God rather says, I'm going to use that because God says there are going to be others that are going to feel the same way. And I I don't know. I, I did not read the book of Ecclesiastes at 16 years old. I don't know what I would have thought. I probably would have said, huh, what's he talking about? Uh, uh, but as uh, an older person, without the beard, of course, I would pass for 20 or so. We've covered this. It's theological. <laughs> but anyway, as an older man, uh, it makes perfect sense. It's all nothing. It's all nothing. A time to plan, a time to reap, a time to... These cycles are driving me nuts. There's a time of peace, and then there's a time of trouble. Then there's a... T- I'd rather just go to heaven. So when we say, boy, Lord, even so, Maranatha, just take me out of here. Are you not expressing the sentiment of Ecclesiastes? His life is hard. I believe that the children of grace root for a man like Solomon. Oh, Lord, I pray he recovered. Rather than, he needs to go to hell, the hottest part. This warped sense of entitlement by his power, by his wealth, by his urges, the lust that he had. And his lusts were not just for women. His lusts extended into capital gains, power, control. And so he became tolerant of the things that God despised. And then he began to, of course, support them subsidize them, as we, we talked about. Did he reason in himself, did he say to himself, so long as I don't believe in these fake gods, what's the real harm of keeping the peace with the other surrounding kingdoms and, and putting up a few monuments? It's all wood, hay, and stubble. I don't really buy into it. I think that might have been a, a large part of it. That is, first off, it failed, We'll, we'll come to that as we go through it. Uh, but secondly, you, um, situational ethics is, is, is not an excuse to disobey God. And Paul talks about that to the Thessalonians. Again, we'll come to it. So let me keep going here before uh, I, I owe you too much come to it points. It says here in verse 11, uh, pardon me, verse 9, who had appeared to him twice, this man Solomon... How many times has the Lord appeared to you? And yet he gets two appearances and two other encounters that were just remarkable. This further complicates our view of Solomon. Here's what Solomon said when he was older. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Well, I, Solomon, I don't know what to believe from coming from you. I read your Proverbs and I find you trample every one of them. It's not everyone, but you trample a lot of them. So why should I believe this is any valuable? Because God's stamp put his stamp of approval on it, number one. And number two, 
Solomon had that sense of entitlement. These proverbs are for you. They're really not for me. It's a, well, some preachers preach down to congregations like, you're the ones that need this. I don't. I don't think the anointed ones do. But I know that there are those that, that do speak down. They write books as though, you know, you're the one that needs this and I'm the one to, to help you out with it. Um, that's a human characteristic. Verse 11, I want to say, am I wrong? But I don't want to give you a chance to disagree out loud. Verse 10, and he had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep Yahweh, what Yahweh had commanded. And of course, he's not the only one. Um, that his heart knew better as that scenario I, I gave just a moment ago when he said, well, that's them, that's not me, there's no real value. Well, that's of little consolation because, again, he imported idolatry and supported idolatry. And because of him, it, it just continued to spread. Now, from God's standpoint, God could have said, look, it would have been a lot worse if I let it go any other way. This way at least contains some of it because we did have, do have some kings coming that will deal with this as best they can. But none of, it, none of them could completely eradicate the land of idolatry. None of them, not even David. Uh, this is true in a church. You can, you can have a small church and think that you can uh, uphold the scripture as a support. And it's just so difficult. There's this constant, uh, it's like gamma rays, you know. It's just these waves. They just keep coming. Then you have these lulls and then boom, here it comes again. And it is... Just a, a never-ending struggle. So you have to, you're ready for it and just say to yourself, well, I don't want to be the guilty one should something like this take place. Uh, he did not keep what Yahweh had commanded him. Uh, clear and to the point, creating the problem for all Bible teachers after this. I mean, imagine giving a lesson of Solomon to like a, a, a five-year-old in the way they can, they're going to call you out. So, and God likes this guy? I mean, this is not matching all the other things you're telling me about being true to God. And that it is an issue. But there's growth in peeling back the layers. Anyway, these women were idol worshipers, but Solomon was just flat out disobedient. Would Jesus have used Solomon in one of his sermons as he did Jonah? portraying Jonah in a positive light and saying, Solomon and all of the, you know, consider the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor they spin. Yet I say to you, Solomon, as much as he was blessed, that's what the meaning is. It's not already such as one, such as one of these. So would the Lord have propped up Solomon like that if Solomon was in hell at the time he was giving his sermon? See, I think this is cause, causes us to think. And I think God wants us to think. We can only go over so far and we can never go outside the box of Scripture. Well, Jeremiah 17 says, I, Yahweh, search the heart, I test the mind. Even to give every man according to, the, to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Well, we're going to get some verses from David that are going to say, Lord, thank you for your mercy on me, when, on us when we sin. Which mount do I go to when I consider the judgment of others? Or on others. Like a Solomon, for example. Do I go to Mount Sinai to judge Solomon with the thunder and the lightning and the trumpets and the barriers? God said, you know, anybody, man or beast, come near this mountain, shoot them with an arrow. That is at the giving of the law at that, that time in Exodus 19. 
that season in Israel's history. Access to God was blocked at Mount Sinai. Oh, Moses could go up and Joshua could go up with him. But the people really had not that, that access. They were terrified. You speak to God, Moses. We are terrified. Or if you don't opt for Mount Sinai, maybe you will opt for Mount Olivet where tears and sweat splattered on the ground in preparation to die for me, for sinners. Leading to the tearing of the veil in the temple. So in my heart, when I look at people who are just, you know, in the sphere of my life, do I think that I'm going to, is my approach to condemn, condemn, condemn? Or is my approach to, Lord, there's got to be a way to be useful, to be part of the solution, to save their soul. Uh, you know, if you're a gossip, just say you're given to gossip. One way to fight, fight it, I don't know that you can overcome it. You might be able to, you might not. But one way to fight gossip is to pray for the people that you're, you know, gossip to God. Go t- but oh, good, new, good notes. You know, you'll, you'll catch yourself if you want to say, you know, God... And this person did that, and he was like, what am I telling God for? You know, this is not right. I wouldn't want to be treated this way. And so maybe you would, you would pray for them. Uh, we must not believe that Jesus died only for those who behaved themselves. Because that would disqualify a lot of us. So, anyway, that behind, you know, the, the life of Solomon... How, how is the Christian going to look at Solomon? I think the Jews largely just ignored it. They just, you know what? We're not going to go there. <laughs> they, well, I mean, look what they did with Saul. They named their kids after King Saul. Who would name their kid after Saul? Oh, no, no, not that's all. <laughs> there was another one I went to high school with. Anyway, verse 11. Therefore, Yahweh said to Solomon, because you have done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your, your servant. Well, this judgment doesn't fall, and it happens shortly after Solomon's death. But well, this is a prediction, of course. There is predictive prophecy. You know, anytime, you, if you're speaking scripture, you're, it's a, the office of, that's prophecy. It may not be predictive prophecy. There's foretelling and there's forth-telling. There's telling what's going to happen, predictive and then there's telling what has happened in its proper application, forth-telling. Um, so that we understand that. Well, let's look at five categories of predictive prophecy, of telling the future. Well, there is prophecy that is fulfilled. In this case, this, this verse is, is fulfilled. It has happened. It wasn't at the time, but it is, is to us now. Then there is the perpetual fulfillments of, of prophecy that we come across in Scripture. An example of that would be Matthew 26, verse 13. I think you'll like this one. How come a piano teacher uh, player can have a page turner and pastors don't get one? Somebody sits there and they just... All right, that's a, that's a thought out loud. Verse 13 Surely I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. 
That's perpetual. That's what on it happened. John Wesley was preaching on this. Spurgeon preached on this. I mean, uh, we preach on it. This is perpetual fulfillment of a prophecy. There is progressive. <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> There's progressive fulfillment of prophecy, where it's just a prophetic layout, and it, it just comes in waves. Uh, Israel being repatriated, for example, the, the cashless society. We're watching this form, and there are other things that are going to go with it. Uh, right now, I don't think the infrastructure of the world is just ready to receive Antichrist enough to satisfy the prophecies concerning what he's going to do. But then uh, there's room to say, well, he can fix that very quickly. So we're, we're watching that. There's, of course, unfulfilled prophecy which is the Great Tribulation period, of course. That would be one, for example. Then there is the uh, eternal prophecies. Paul said that we will forever dwell with the Lord, and there we shall forever dwell. And that is going to happen, and it will be eternal. And so it, it's nice to see that, uh, the, this, this approach to prophecy in the Scripture, because it gives us a better understanding of our God, how he works, and our role in response to what he teaches us. Here in verse 11, where it mentions, uh, <clears throat> uh, where, let me go back to where it says, uh, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Well, that's going to be Jeroboam. Unfortunately for us, we have Solomon's only named child, Rehoboam, only named son, Rehoboam. And then we have the enemy of Rehoboam and Solomon, Jeroboam. It would have been nice if their names were just not so similar. Until you get it, then it doesn't make a difference. Uh, anyway, verse 12. Nevertheless, I do not want... Uh, never, pardon me. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Well, God's postponing this judgment. I think on behalf of... The remnant that was still alive from David's days, and um, it was certainly a postponement. My guess is that there were lives that God wanted to spare from this judgment. Uh, that would that would be acceptable, I think. Uh, but anyway, every king of the Jews lived in the shadow of David. And God is the one that set that up. God cast the shadow of David. David did not. David just loved the Lord, man after God's own heart. And we're going to get, to, David's name shows up 16 times in this chapter. 15 times just from chapter 9 to, the, to, to verse 43. 15 times David's name is, is, is mentioned, is employed. And it's going to cause us to look at that. Verse 13, however, I will not tear it away, tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David. There he is again. And for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Simeon, the tribe of Simeon, its territory was surrounded by Judah's territory. And by this time, Simeon had been assimilated into Judah. The individuals still retained, you know, I, I'm, I'm a Simeonite, but uh, they really had no tribal leaders, and they, they just were just absorbed. We'll find out that after Jer Jeroboam starts pulling his little dud moves, many of the Levites will leave the north and come and dwell in, in Judah also. 
this mention of David, you know, I cringe when I hear people criticize David unwisely. It's fine to, you know, he had his sins, right? But to harp on those sins, I'd be very careful because God doesn't do that. God holds up David as his poster boy king. Verse 14. Well, and I want to know about that. Why is God doing that? Verse 14. Now Yahweh raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad, the Edomite. He was a descendant of the king of Edom. Well, with a name like that, if you're not a father, you just have a lot of explaining to do all the time. Hey, Dad. Uh, I'm not a, sorry, I'm not a father. <laughs> but that's your name. Uh, anyway, uh, well, there's a couple of them in here that are sentences. Parts <laughs> of so funny. And that's where I lose it. You know, when I see these things in Scripture, they're just so silly to me. Uh, and, and I refuse to grow up in that area. So, uh, earth is full of resources for God, good and bad. Here are these, he has these instruments. They're already there. He can restrain them or he can release them. And because of Solomon's sin and how blatant it was, he releases them. Now, if you struggle with sin, Satan will come along, the accuser of the brethren, he will come along and he will say, this is you. Well, you know, A.W. Tozier had a book called I Talk Back to the Devil. And that alone was a, is a sermon. You can talk back to the devil. The Lord rebuke you. Uh, you know, my sins are forgiven. I am not Solomon. Solomon, we have no record of him laying it all out before God. I messed this whole thing up. But we have a record of that with ourselves. Well, Solomon, he has no one to blame for this. All these enemies that are going to come up. And there will be three of them that God will launch on Solomon. Solomon's marriage, incidentally, to an Edomite did not, there's no benefit. This Hadad is an Edomite, and he is an enemy. And that marriage is, he doesn't care about anything about that. There will be Hadad the Edomite, he will be an enemy from the south of Judah. Then we'll come to Rezon, he's a Syrian, he will come from the north. And then there will be Jeroboam. He is a Hebrew, and he will be from within. And so he's going to catch it from north, south, and from within, which is the worst. You know, in a church, is you can, you're ready for outside problems. You're not ready for the internal. I mean, you, you know, you, you, you can, you get ready, but it's just never, never is it, uh, um, does it make any sense. Well, sin doesn't make any sense. What, what Satan did against God to rebel made no sense. Like, are you kidding me? You're a created being. What makes you think you're on his level? No, he's the patriarch of insanity. Verse 15. For it happened when David was in Edom and Joab, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the slain after he had killed every male in Edom. We pause there. There's there's a a historical note there in verse 15 that they were going up to bury the slain. And according to the numbers we get, there's a lot of digging going on. What happens if they don't bury them? Well, the vultures and the, you know, scavengers. And I'm sure that that happened anyway. But uh, that's just an interesting little point there. Verse 16 
because for six months Joab remained there with all Israel until he had cut down every male in Edom. Well, this was, they were going to crush their ability to wage war. You could do it in different ways, and this way was to wipe out the men. And this is true to this day. If you want to push an evil agenda, get rid of the men. And we're watching, you know, the feminization of, of men. Men are evil. And, uh, well, by, according to those nitwits, and that's what they are. They're just polished nitwits. It's Satan's little puppets. That was my rant. Back to this. What's the name of that book? Chronicles. Chronicles tells us this happened at the Valley of Salt. And that, so such a name, right? The Valley of Salt. That's at the, you know, by the south, by the Dead Sea. And the southernmost tip of the Dead Sea, actually, where Edom was located, at the, much of Edom, that is. Well, <clears throat> three men in the scripture are credited with great slaughters on the battlefield at this time. Second Samuel 8, David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. Well, they came a long way south. First Chronicles 18, moreover, Abishai, that's the brother of Joab, killed 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. And then in Psalm 60, as part of the, the heading to the psalm, it says, and Joab returned and killed 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. These are large, I mean, no one's out there counting, okay, one, two dead, three dead. That's not that kind of a body count. These are large numbers of, of troop divisions that were wiped out, and, and that's where they're getting these, these numbers. Uh, it would not be sensible to think that, you know, they just, okay, how many did you count today? And uh, I, don't, I missed five. <laughs> Coyotes dragged off a couple of them. Uh, anyway, that, that's... Um, uh, there you go. Verse 17. <clears throat> that Hadad fled to go to Egypt, and a certain and uh, he and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him. Hadad was still a little child. So when David launched this campaign against the Edomites to keep them in place and remove that threat, that southern threat, because they could have teamed up with Egypt, man, that would have been a more of a problem, or the Ethiopians. But anyway, when David <clears throat> deals with these people, he escapes. He's a little boy, and they get him out of, out of, off the battlefield uh, in, to Egypt, the nearest uh, civilization. Uh, everything else was Bedouin. And it was common practice in ancient war to annihilate the people that were against you so that they couldn't rise up again and take revenge. And ancient, ancient kings were often paranoid when it came to claims to the throne. You know, Herod, with, you know, the, the king of, of the Jews, you know, killing the innocent babies at Bethlehem. It's because of his paranoia that he had a claim on the throne and he just wasn't going to tolerate any of it. That's Satan's uh, excuse. Verse 18, Then they arose from Midian and came to Paran. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> And he took men with him, with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house, a portion food for him, 
and gave him land. Well, we see this today. Exiles, you know, I remember the Shah of Iran. He fled to France, and they just set him up, and he had a pretty good life uh, till he died, as people go. Verse 19, And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him as wife, his sister of his own wife, that is, his sister, sister, Queen Tophanes, verse 20, then the, sister, then the sister of Tophanes bore him Ganubath, his son, whom Tophanes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Ganubath was in Pharaoh's house, house <laughs> was in Pharaoh's household among the sons of Pharaoh. Well, again, if you you know you wanted some some parents really feel it's their obligation to be unique in naming their child, and the Bible has some names for you. Ganubath is a male name. Um, I wouldn't do it. Verse 21, So when Hadad heard in Egypt that David rested with his fathers, and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me depart, that I may go to my own country. Listen how the Bible words that. David rested with his fathers. Joab's dead. <laughs> I mean, David was dead too. It's a euphemism for David. Joab doesn't get the same treatment because he's dead. We don't know if he was where he is uh, because he was a murderer. Anyway, verse 22, Then Pharaoh said to him, But what have you lacked with me that suddenly you seek to go to your own country? So he answered, Nothing. But do let me go anyway. Well, no one wants to be a bad host. So what was it, the silverware, the forks on the wrong side? Well, what was it? <laughs> and uh, it's the type of orange juice you buy. You know I only like Tropicana. And anyway, uh, uh, I wonder if I'll get, like, well, some fees for that promotion. Hmm. <laughs> anyway, uh, he has got unfinished business against Israel. And this destabilization of the region from the north and within and from the south is all Solomon's fault. Well, not really. God's, God's going to point out some others, too. It's really, he's like 90% of it, maybe. But it's not only Solomon, but he is the leader. And had Solomon been faithful, God would have restrained these agitators. They would not have popped up. And there's a lesson for us in that, for sure. His reckless treatment, again, of Deuteronomy 17 uh, was the gateway. And then idolatry was, was Satan's payoff. Verse 23, uh, well, back to that just a moment. So it wasn't the wealth, it wasn't the women, it wasn't uh, just the, the going with the horses and multiplying them. It was the idolatry. It was the treatment of God, how he treated the name of God. That's what provoked God the most. Verse 23, and God raised up another adversary against him, Rezan, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his lord, Hadadezer, king of Zobah. So he gathered men to him and became captain over a band of raiders when David killed those of Zobah, and they went to Damascus and dwelt there, and reigned in Damascus, verse 25, 
He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, besides the trouble that Hadad caused, and he abhorred Israel and reigned over Syria. And so here we have this, um, this territory David took from the Edomites and then up in Damascus. Well, Solomon is now losing all this. It's all falling apart. Um, he personally is not threatened. The kingdom is not threatened, except for when Jeroboam comes, comes on the scene. But this was all avoidable. And this man, um, he is reason, an inveterate enemy. He's going to be a lot of problem for the Jews. And we'll come across him as we move through the kings. Is Syria, in Damascus, Syria, they'll get stronger. And Israel get, will get weaker. Verse 26, Then Solomon's servants, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an, Eph- an Ephraimite from Zeradah, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. And so here's the third one. God had a plan for Jeroboam's life, and he will ruin it. You know, when we, you know, a lot of evangelists like to say, God's got a plan for your life. Well, I don't disagree with that. But I also know you can mess it up. And the way I know that is I look at the scripture and see what happened. God had a plan for Jeroboam. He was to be king of the northern kingdom. God was going to make him great like David. Look what he did. He created idols. The writer in Chronicles says he made those demons. <laughs> he gets right at it. He doesn't pull any punches. He's there. Those, those statues, they're demons. <laughs> so, anyway, Hadad attacked Solomon as a review from the south, Rezon from the north, and Jeroboam from within. Verse 27 is pouring on him. And uh, this is the fruit of his idolatry. And this is what caused him to rebel against the king. This is, what, this is the catalyst behind Jeroboam's problem with Solomon. <clears throat> Solomon had built the millo and repaired the damages to the city of David, his father. And that millo is likely uh, embankments, fortifications, and or terraces to, to fight uh, erosion or grow crops. It could just a lot of other things that could be also in, or include. Verse 28, the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor, and Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him an officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. So his, he's the secretary of labor. That's a pretty big position. He's a cabinet member. Verse 29, now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, met him on the way and he had clothed himself with a new garment and the two were alone in the field. Finally, finally, a prophet's on the scene. Now it's getting good again. I'm so tired of these bourgeoisie kings. (laughs) Well, Solomon, not David. Uh, Just finally. Uh, I'm in animated because when he gets old, God is still using this man. He can't see him. We we'll get to that. Uh, I don't know, chapter fourteen. Uh, yeah, it might be Chronicles. Anyway, uh, he just he can't even see, and God is telling him who's in front of him and giving him prophecy. Just these two sections. I, I just like this guy. He comes on the scene like this. Well, anyway, uh, Solomon is not going to yield to the prophecy that's coming. And Jeroboam, he was a faithful servant to Solomon. He's just unfaithful to God. How's that work? Because man was more real to him than God. We see this all the time. 
Ahijah, this prophet, um, he's the first prophet named since Nathan back in chapter 1. It is 1 Kings 14, and we'll, we'll come to him again. When Jeroboam's wife comes to them about their sick child and wants to know, will he survive? And Elijah essentially says, the only good thing in your house is that kid, not you two. Anyway, uh, you just got to love these prophets because God is, he's now going to start ramping up the prophets that not only pronounce judgment, but perform miracles like Elijah. If I'm a man of God, let fire come down. Then God will set a second wave of prophets who will not only pronounce God's word and write God's word for future generations, but they also will do miraculous things. Mostly um, Isaiah and, and, and Jeremiah. Uh, but, uh, and Daniel, of course. Can't, and Daniel will do his, have his ministry mostly out, outside of Israel. Anyway, verse 30. Then Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces. Now, this, this is kind of cute. Whose garment? I mean, whose garment is he? It doesn't tell us. And the Hebrew lens for both, both where the context is, it seems first thought that the prophet grabs a high, um, Jeroboam's garment and he tears it up into 12 pieces. Well, it says a new garment. In his new position, he would have new, you know, a new suit to go into the king's presence, to take care of business. This is a big thing in those days. You know, give him a robe, put my robe on him and a, and a medallion and stuff like that. I don't think he tore his own. I think the prophets were cheap. <laughs> I don't think he tore his own. So it's just a funny little thing in the story. Like, hey, what are you doing? And they're out in the field. I mean, well... This is different. We've had, we have three examples of, of prophets, or not prophets, people in the Bible trying to make their point, drive it home in an extraordinary way. The first is that gruesome Levite who chose to butcher his dead concubine to make his point and chopped her up and sent her to the various tribal leaders to rally them for war. And there's just no way to, to spin that into something good. Saul, less ghoulish than that Levite, he butchered an ox to rally Israel to, to answer the cry for battle. Less ghoulish, but still butchering. But here the man of God chooses something less savage to drive home his point. His point. He rips up a garment. Jeroboam's not going to forget this. The message is going to be very clear. He won't walk away saying, now, did he mean he's going to know full well and he's not going to ever forget this? He will act like it did not happen, uh, according to God, when he becomes an apostate. But right now, uh, the prophet tears the garment into these pieces. This division that is coming of the kingdom will not be the peaceful product of negotiations. It won't be the northern tribes negotiating with it. It will be a, a, a rip, a painful work of God's displeasure will befall the, the people <clears throat> of Israel. So, um, let's move on. Verse 31. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself ten pieces. For thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon 
and will give ten tribes to you. Verse 32, but he shall have one tribe for my sake, for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Well, as I mentioned, he, he's not going to forget or be confused about this message because of how Ahijah illustrates it. The citizens of the ten tribes who decide to stay in Judah, they'll be free to stay there and remain faithful to the throne of David. Levites will then later come uh, from the northern kingdom. Because when it splits, the people have no... They're not thinking, okay, we now have a north and southern kingdom, but they still have Jerusalem as their central place of worship. And Jeroboam's going to see that as a threat, and he's going to, try to, he's going to take steps to stop that, and he's going to be largely successful. And thus we have the prophets to the north, like Hosea... And, and Amos, for example. Well, it says here in verse 32, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and give ten tribes to you. What an unpleasant message for the prophet to get. I mean, there he's minding his business, doing whatever he's doing, making candles, whatever. <laughs> Working on a transmission for this new chariot he's got. And, and the message got, comes to him. I'm going to split the kingdom. So he, the, the unpleasantness of receiving this kind of a message, then having to deliver it, and then living to see it happen. But this is what the man of God does. He says, I'm just a messenger, and I deliver the message. I, I, I'm not here to edit it or criticize it. Verse 33, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and keep my statutes and my judgments as did his father David. You teens, you notice here, the world has got plenty of fake gods for you. They'll just make one up that you might like. Don't forget you used to come to church on a Wednesday night. You came to graduate school. You, you, well, some of you would be like, I had to come. Well, God then, he is the one that designed that. You were born into a home, parents that loved the Lord enough to come to a midweek. At what point are you responsible to say to God, thank you? Well, when you're faced with these fake old gods in the world, the God of intelligence, the God of pleasure, the God of drugs, whatever it is, stand up to it and don't be Satan's little whooping boy. Or girl, as it might be. Christianity requires you be involved. That's why Jesus said, take up your cross. It's personal. All right. Um, that was not a rant. And um, we move on back to this, these fake gods. So here is where we come to. It says, notice, we notice that they are identified as the cause. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Asterisk. Not just Solomon, they. The people were enjoying it. I think if the people, maybe if the people pushed back a little bit more, maybe Solomon would have been, you know, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. They had a booming economy and a dud religion, dud faith. And it's nobody, nobody's fault but their own. The enchanted kingdom of opulence and splendor was doomed. And the clock is ticking before it will nothing, there will be nothing left to, to be reminded of it except what's in print. Islam has supplanted the gods of these, this region of the world. Just pushed them all out and just, you know what, 
This is the God you're going to worship now, like it or die. Verse 34, however, Ahijah is still speaking God's message. I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. This is David again. God misses no chance to dote on this man. He's just constantly, just, the, the prophet is, that's writing this story is like, David this and David that. The kings need to know he is the gold standard. His devotion to God. Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. These are the kind of things David wrote and taught. And the Psalms that don't have his name on it, but have this sentiment, you say, you know, David influenced that. The Jews weren't getting there without David. When he comes along the line, he shows them how to write a psalm. So much so that the sons of Korah, many of those psalms are, are likely authored by David, and they're the ones that uh, produced them, sang them. Uh, just this, this influence. And look at today. We have this broke, woke junk. Who's influencing that? Well, Satan himself. I mean, you have... These evil people that want to rule and can't even define what a woman is. I mean, I mean, somebody ought to tar and feather that person and parade them through the streets for all the damage they're doing and trying to do to future generations and this one too. This generation, not the, not the righteous or the sensible ones, but there's an element of this generation that has a stupidity that humanity has never seen before. And they're boxing themselves in, and they don't even care. Men, women, winning women's sporting events. and, and I mean, what? Yeah, Antichrist is coming. He's going to have a world of, of people that are dumb as a sack of wet mice to just lead around and do whatever he wants. And uh, I, this is just, it's beyond shame. It's now into deep, dark wickedness. That's what it is. People refusing to give a basic definition. It started with the other guy, you know, depending on what if is. A president of the United States messing with the, you know, acting like, anyway, acting like, all right, back to the scripture. You can get the pundits to tell you that, but the pundits can't tell you what 1 Kings 11, uh, uh, 8 through 43 is all about. Uh, that would be for men like me. Okay, <laughs> verse 35. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you. Give it to you. Ten tribes. Again, he'll know that a prophet has spoken to him. Rehoboam, who will, Solomon's son, not Jeroboam, who he's talking to now. When Rehoboam comes along, he will know this prophecy. He will know it was spoken. Because this prophecy is what Solomon uses to want to kill Jeroboam. Well, he, Jeroboam's going to have to run to Egypt until Solomon dies. Because when Solomon hears about this, he's not going to side with God. He's going to try to kill this man. Well, Rehoboam knows this, but in his arrogance, he dismisses it. How many people hear the word of God and dismiss it as unimportant to them? Hell is full of people like that. Verse 36, And to his son I will give one tribe, my servant David, 
may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself to put my name there. Again, God missing no chance to dote on David. I want, you know, I don't know, I'm kind of careful about that. God doted on Job. <laughs> that, did, that was intense. So, uh, you know, I'd like keep a low profile maybe. Anyway, uh, <laughs> David, God prolonged the shining lamp of David. He kept the oil flowing to the lamp of David to this very day. Here we are speaking of David as, as the lamp of Israel. To this day, we read and sing his psalms and study his life and his interactions with God and people. That light shines on and it helps us see our way. Psalm 119, again, I read this Sunday. Trouble and anguish have overtaken me, yet your commandments are my delight. Your word, in the midst of my troubles, your word is no less than your commandment. It's not like, ooh, you know, how come you're not helping me now? Your Bible says you're going to do this. Your Bible... No, David didn't go that route. David stood his ground. Verse 37. So I will take you and you shall reign over all the heart... All... Let me, I'm sorry, I just want to get, I want to get to other points about David. <laughs> and this verse is in my way. Verse 37. So I will take you, and you shall reign over all your heart desires, and you shall be king over Israel. This is pretty intense. But what Jeroboam will do will be irreconcilable. But how many men were alive in Israel when this was spoken? Let's just say two million, conservative number. That would mean Jeroboam was one in two million men. Out of two million men, he gets the call. What's he going to do with it? He's going to shred the call. That's what he's going to do. The same way the garment was ripped to shreds, he's going to rip the calling to shreds. And there are people that still... I think when a man says he, he's ordained to be a pastor, then he goes and runs for office, he's just ripped his calling to shreds. How can you do that? I don't know of any that I admire for doing that. Maybe you do. That's that's fine. But um, I, I don't I don't see how you can trade. This. Well, I'm more help to the public if I'm in public office. No, you're not. It's hard enough to find people to, to man a pulpit the way God wants them to man a pulpit. God can find politicians, as we can see, <laughs> in insane asylum. <laughs> They're easy to find. <laughs> Verse 38, then it shall, you know, as one Chesterton, when I contemplate how few politicians are hanged, <laughs> talks about how sad he is when he contemplates how few politicians are hanged. He was sorry they were getting away with the evil that they were getting away with. Anyway, um, back to verse 38, then it shall be if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways, do what is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did. Then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. Can't say that about Solomon. Can't take David's name out and put Solomon's name or Saul's name and you will not be able to put Jeroboam's name there either. The tragedy is that Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, is 
next in line, that's what God had to work with. And Jeroboam, the one who will take the northern kingdom, is what God had to work with. Verse 39, And I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. David is the most mentioned man in the Bible, a second to Jesus Christ. Over 1,100 times, his name comes up. Moses is next, with 700, about 740 times. I think that's remarkable. I think that's... A, see, these are the reading between the lines of things that are there. This, when you come to the life of David, you're reading the life of a man who God just kept bringing up throughout his scripture, Old and New Testament alike. Uh, Verse 40, Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose, fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now, Shishak sold seashells. (laughs) Well, uh, again, rivals to the throne, not taken lightly. Uh, why didn't Solomon petition the Lord and said, turn to his temple and repent? Why did not he, Solomon seem to just disrespect his own advice? Maybe, maybe he had some sort of virus that affected his thinking. But you, he had to have just thought he was above his own teachings. Verse 41. And maybe, you know, get to heaven. He says, Solomon, what was your problem? I had a fever. <laughs> I just I wasn't well. Maybe there's some excuse, um, but it's in God's hands. Verse 41. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon, all that he did, and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? Well, God wasn't interested interested in preserving that document. Verse 42. And I'm glad because I'm this is it. We get to move on after this chapter. Verse 42. And the period that Solomon reigned in Israel. Over all Israel was 40 years. <clears throat> so, again, the legalist struggles to get Solomon forgiven or in heaven. Grace looks to cheer him on in, in, in the mental approach. The difference between the two mindsets is that grace, well, legalism seeks to uh, seek and destroy. That's how legalists live. The very sins they're guilty of, they just magnify in you and turn on you and make this presentation that they're righteous and you're not, if you, especially if you, you, you get on their wrong side. Grace looks to seek and serve, seek, to seek and save, not seek out and destroy, but to seek and to save. So illustrating this, we have Elijah in, under Old Testament law, an Old Testament dispensation, the, the period of time, that, how it worked. They came to arrest this man of God for being a man of God. And he calls fire. He says, I'm a man of, if I am a man of God, may fire come down and, and take you out. And fire did that. Lightning came out. And, and by the time the third captain got there, he says, please, don't kill me. And, and, and Elijah goes with him. This, of course, impresses us until we come into touch with grace. So in the New Testament... When the disciples, two of the disciples, the brothers, John and James, they didn't like the way one village treated Christ. So they said, shall we call fire down on them? Like, who are you to call me? We call fire. Christ could have said, sure, go ahead. Let me see what you got. And nothing would have happened. The sun is still out. Anyway, 
Christ rebuked them, lightly, gently, I would think. And he said, you don't know what spirit you're of. We're not looking, we're not here to seek out and destroy people. We're here to seek and out to seek and to save. And this is what he says in Luke's Gospel 19:10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's this is grace. Grace tries. It doesn't mean it excuses the wrongs. It's not firm when it needs to be firm against wrong or the impenitent, but it does mean if it has a chance. To bring forth a solution, it's going to do that. And I've known many illegalists. It's very hard for them to get out of it, too, once they're in it. And uh, they have a way of making everybody else feel that they are the model. And uh, I think whenever they're doing that, the reality is they're worse. They They have learned to cover their sins and fool some of the people. Grace. That is uh, what the New Testament, ministers of grace, that's, that's who we are. The goodness of God that is not deserved, but it is not recklessly poured out either. If you want to go to your grave thinking that there's no such thing as male and female, grace will not help you because you have rejected it. Um, he made them male and female. How dare you touch that? They can't even get the right amount of colors in the rainbow. You notice that? There's missing one. It's like, man, that's dumb. It's not a rainbow now. Anyway, they try to hijack things. That's what they do. Teens, beware of them. They hijack words, everything. You know, it used to be, uh, you know, if, if you got a bonus in your paycheck, you were happy and gay. They stole that word. They try to steal that word. And now if you say you're happy and gay, it's you, 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 something else. And now they don't even want you to use that word. Satan is a serious deal. God is more serious. Choose him. Sorry, make sure I'm not messing up my time. Verse 43. So then Solomon rested with his father's fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. So, um, I mean, what else is to say? He was influenced by lower urges to give in. He imported idolatry into the promised land. This brought down the judgment on him. Uh, The Chronicles do not record the sad ending of Solomon because the Chronicles are written for those Jews coming back into the promised land and, and God is encouraging them and not looking to remind them. They didn't need that reminder. And was buried in the city of David, his father. There's no record of Solomon giving the spiritual send-off to Rehoboam that David gave to Solomon. Remember, we covered that. Did Solomon be a man? And where did Solomon give that to Rehoboam? It doesn't seem to have done it. As magnificent, materialistically speaking, as he was, spiritually he was, he was a pauper. The name of Solomon, it never moved the hearts of the people like the name of David. That's why we we've talked about how many times David's name shows up in Scripture. And so ends the gloom and the failure that was so full of promise that scares us, it spooks us. But yet, Judas is a worse, is, is a worse case disaster. Uh, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. 
He inherited, inherited an incredible kingdom and lost it. Uh, that's what's going to happen. This kingdom. My, my nickname for Rehoboam is migraine. Because whenever I think of how much of a fool he was, I get a migraine. He's, the, he's uh, just, and his dumber friends. Man, when we get to them, we'd be glad to get past them too. There's one other point this evening that I think I, I passed over. And um, maybe I'll have to wait until next time. I wanted to comment on situational ethics, but I did not want to comment on it. There we go. The sense of entitlement. Did I miss a verse tonight, anybody know? I did? Oh, good. All right, just check and see if you were paying attention. This uh, situational ethics, uh, the end justifies the means. This is not Christian. This is the world, and it's very dangerous. God has not left questions of right or wrong to be decided by changing circumstances. There, there are... Uh, there's grace given to the leaders. Jesus say, said, what you bind, I'll bind. What you let loose, I'll let loose. Because I understand you're going to be in tricky situations where you don't know the clear answer. I don't want you fretting over that. You've got to make a call sometimes. And I'll back you up. It doesn't mean it would be the right call. But anything less would mean, you know, nobody would want the job. This is what Paul says in Second Timothy. Also, if anyone competes in athletics... He is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. According to the rules. So you can run like a winner or run like a sinner is what God is saying. In other words, it matters. It matters. The rules do matter. And Solomon was the one that felt he was above these rules. And it brought a lot of pain to other people. Well, that's it for Solomon. Next up, Rehoboam and Jeroboam go at it. Let's pray. Our Father, may we take to heart all the lessons that you give to us. Uh, may it sink down into the lives, especially of our youth, who, uh, Lord, may, may be missing it or may be getting it. May they get it and may they never lose it. May you protect them from Satan who wants to pick them off. May your blessings be on their lives. May they grow into people who not only love you, but will serve you and will preach Jesus Christ. May you get us all home safely tonight. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.